All right, I want to talk a little bit about theoretical perspectives. Now, theories are the lenses through which scholars view sociocultural phenomena, and they can be defined in specific terms like Max Weber's theory of power or refer to broad analytical frameworks that have an intellectual history of prominent thinkers and key texts, such as structural functionalism, critical theory, symbolic interactionism, depending on the specific social science, there'll be two or three or more overarching theories that differentiate and collectively define the discipline and determines the kinds of questions we ask. So if different theoretical perspectives, which are analytical lenses, if they shape different kinds of questions we ask and the kinds of data we collect, they've got to be appropriately matched. If we want to learn about the orbit of the moon, we wouldn't use a magnifying glass. Similarly, if we wanted to learn about why people in Brazil prefer one model of car over another, we might find theories dealing with status symbols more useful than theories about globalization. Or would we? I mean, perhaps the topic would be best understood by combining theories about status symbols, which comes from sociology, and theories about globalization, which are more akin to economics and culture. Our basic research question just became much more interesting. Does relative stock value of automobile companies in the global marketplace affect car model status? A Brazilian case study. And so this kind of cross-fertilization is at the core of original analysis. In the same way that we need to be conscious of the theoretical tools that we're going to be, have at our disposal and use them accurately and consistently to develop themes, we also have to be aware of the different levels of analysis that we're going to be operating on and that we're going to work around. And the levels of analysis, you've heard these, you say microanalysis, right? And that's on the individual level, personal identity. Meso is community level or cultural group, a meso-analysis. Macro means things like nation-states, structural inequality, globalization, and how it impacts various nations and peoples. And the fourth level, which I was just building up to, is the global scale. And those are issues and contexts that have transnational impacts. By transnational, I mean it's not just international, meaning the way one nation interacts with another, interacts with a third, and how they combine with alliances. That's international. Transnational is a different kind of phenomenon, and it includes things like migration, immigration, cultural flows, things like the internet, climate change, some of these where you can talk about really big picture things. So you move from the individual at the micro level to the community and cultural group to a macro level like nation states, international relations, economic institutions and how they relate to political structures and that kind of thing. And then the global analysis where you're looking at trends that span and transcend multiple nations. 
So with those levels in mind, we keep in, keep in mind that all social phenomena are situated across the entire spectrum in one way or another, from the micro to the global. For example, global media impacts the way we think about charity, no longer just community-based face-to-face, but also donating to tsunami victims on the other side of the globe. And these are some examples of points of reflection at different levels of analysis. On the micro level, do I judge people by their clothes? Do I think blondes are easy? How did I learn to fear Muslims or Christians? And that has to do with a very personal level and in the context of enculturation, socialization, family influences. And these are the kinds of things where you would have one-on-one interviews to talk to people about. On the meso scale, you might ask research questions like, how do gangs mark off their territory? Or who shapes community opinions? What are the politics of reggae music? That kind of thing. Where you're still very close to everyday life. You're in the heart of everyday life. But you're looking at patterns of social groups and populations. And on a macro level, what is a nation's official religion? How is culture used to control citizens? How are immigrants treated? These are macro-level questions. And on the global level, uh, has the UN intervened in a conflict? Has globalization changed farming? Has the web changed the way we challenge oppression? Now here's some theoretical lenses that we can use as we're looking at things along different scales of analysis from the micro to the macro to the global. In the first theoretical lens, we're going to talk about structural functionalism. And this theoretical model has its own history of prominent thinkers that date back to the early 19th century and was very popular um, founding principle in sociology for a long time. Anthropologists worked with this model as well. It's actually a combination of two anthropological models, structuralism and functionalism. But for our purposes, you just need to take society as a collection of institutions and systems that combined make something like a closed body that contain organs like the political system, the institution of marriage, economic policies, the banking system, law enforcement, religion, ethnicity, ethnic groups. And you draw all these interconnected relationships between what you really want to stay as sort of concrete categories like religion is separate from politics, so that you can talk about their overlap. Structural functionalism is helpful when you just want to get to the nuts and bolts of how a society operates. Who's in charge? How do they exert force? What's the, what do they live on? What is the source of their food? Um, how complex and what are the dynamics of social stratification? Which social roles and positions are valued and which are seen as, as low class. And these are the kind of things that sociologists look at, the kinds of categories, and you want to be able to develop some sort of structure that you can 
plug in information from a given society because every society has some sort of exchange, you know, whether it's the most fundamental person-to-person -person aspect of a gift and the expectations that come with gift-giving in a society, all the way to complex billionaire multinational corporations and global religions, distributions of wealth and access to scarce resources spanning from absolute opulent wealth to destitute poverty. You can look at it from a structural functional approach and break it down into its component parts, how it's interlinked and structured. And here's the key. You look at this society as a functioning whole, as a functioning body, and points of disequilibrium, what you might call dysfunction, is balanced by shifts in other areas that compensate, and in some way or other, everything that happens inside a society can be described and explained in terms of interconnected relationships between institutions. And it has an implicit goal of stability, like a healthy functioning society in structural functionalism is based on stability and sustainability. And if you take that as your benchmark, then you can identify the ways that the institutions in a society are connected together to maintain that stability, like a snapshot in time, how is this body alive? And there are a couple of problems with this theoretical perspective. For example, it's relatively simplistic, and by imposing categories from the outside, you may miss what a cultural analysis would identify, and those are categories and systems and institutions within a culture that are unlike any other. I mean, there are cultural universals, things that every culture has, like incest taboo and the random conversation has to do with the weather, beliefs in the supernatural. These are things that all cultures have and you can use when you're looking at a culture. And see, I've switched my analytical lens and looked at what the people in a society actually do on the ground. And, an interper for example, an interpersonal gift exchange may have religious overtones in the way it relates to the sealing of a business deal or a marriage. And cultures are so unique that you have to be very wary about applying broad categories as opposed to using the internal logic of a, of a culture if you take a culture as a unified whole in the same way structural functionalism takes a society as a unified whole. But through a cultural lens, you can look at things that are unique and you can descend into people's everyday lives and what makes the world meaningful. But that's not what structural functionalism really focuses on. Culture is just one category like religion and economics that structural functionalists look at to see what's shaping what and which and how some institutions are responding to or impacted by other institutions and the repercussions in this other third system, that kind of thing. And structural functionalism doesn't make any real effort to look at power inequalities other than to contextualize them 
as part of the functioning whole that makes society operate. All right, the, the cultural perspective that I was referring to just a minute ago, we can call this the interpretive approach. And that's where you look at symbols and ideas. Now, this is relativist, where you don't make judgments. And it's subjectivist in the sense that as an outsider, you recognize the ultimate validity of the subjective experience of that person in that cultural group. It's a constructivist approach, which means that the, you know, the interpretive theoretical model is based on the premise that we construct our own reality and that these institutions, these processes that structural functionalists find us in are actually creations of our imagination. For example, let's talk about nationalism. This idea that everyone in the United States, an American, that we share something in common and that there are American values, American traditions, destinies, this idea of America is collectively imagined and articulated differently over and over all day long every day by different people in different contexts. And there's stuff in there. There's cultural elements that have been cobbled together to create various versions of what it means to be an American. But this idea that we are all American, that's in our imagination. Something like the United Nations recognizes our territorial boundaries. That adds a structural element to it. That gives us something to call it. And there's a nation-state model out there that can be adapted for any group of people or people on any given territory. But there is no essential American that's deep in our blood biologically as descendants because we're somehow genetically connected. The notion of roots, you have your roots in a place, that's a biological metaphor for a set of feelings and associations in your mind. Motherland, fatherland, patriotism, the word patriot, you know, as pater, is father. Those family connections, those metaphors, make a link between a deep-seated biological predisposition toward family care, mothers, fathers, children, and the family unit, and that bond to a political context, such as the nation-state and the notion of patriotism and love for your country and want to protect your country. You want your country to protect you. And those are metaphors. Those are figurative connections going on inside our minds, and we share these, and we speak of these things, and we produce them, and they evolve in the context as things change. And in that regard, to see it, it's performative, which means you don't really know a sociocultural phenomena until you see it, until it's done. And if I want to display my ethnic identity, I perform it in public. And what that means is I'm conscious about how I look, the things I do, the way I act. It focuses on the public sphere, the language I speak. And this isn't something that falls within the structural functional perspective. They might say, they might say structural functionals might say there are rituals that are important. But the interpretative approach would get into those rituals and see what the symbols are 
and what that ritual means at that point on that day and the people involved, plus what it's mean for that ethnic group over a long period of time and how it's recreated each time it's performed. It's ethnographic, which means it's based on participant observation, careful examination of the everyday life using cultural-specific internal concepts and principles and categories and, and things rather than applying external theoretical models that define systems and interrelationships between structures that are supposed to fit all societies. In that sense, it's very qualitative. It's difficult to count culture. But in structural functionalism, it's very difficult to describe the quality of life, a qualitative approach to people in that society, mostly based on quantitative data, surveys, polls, things where you can add up numbers. The interpretive approach is much more based on qualitative data. You can also get that qualitative data through polls and sur surveys and stuff, but it's a different kind of question. And part of the critique of the interpretive approach that focuses on symbols and ideas is that it's kind of fuzzy. And in a way, that was sort of what the structural functionalists were responding to was a general critique in the academics of the hard sciences, biology, chemistry, the life sciences, the physical sciences over on one side. They actually have concrete numbers and you can run tests and stuff. And the social scientists, but when you're dealing with people's feelings and thoughts and cultural expressions and stuff, that's really hard to count. And so the physical scientists were basically saying there's no such thing as social science. Part of that response from social scientists was to show that this structural functional approach is systematic and standardized, and when it's applied appropriately, it can shed insight, it can produce reliable knowledge about a society. The interpretive approach just nuances that kind of thing, and it gives it more texture and helps us understand what it's like to live in a society like that as a cultural creature. Another thing that the structural functionalists were responding to, and this was a time when a lot of the you know, anthropological studies, sociologists and anthropologists, were with primitive peoples. They were with the people who lived in, that's quotation marks, primitive. They were the people, the people who lived under colonial rule or in nations where the scientists were closely aligned with the ruling elite to gain access and resources to do the research that they want to do. So they didn't spend a lot of time talking about how oppressed the people were and how painful their lives were if it was because of something that your sponsor, your patron, the government, had done, and that those are the those are the exact conditions under which you gain access to these people that you want to study. In other words, you work with a colonial government in Pango Pango and talk about Pango Pango cultural groups, but sort of leave out the part about how they're currently being incorporated into the British Empire, you focus on their long traditions and their deep past and present their society as a 
functioning whole and any unequal relationships actually contribute to the stability and health of that society. And although the interpretive approach is more nuanced and allows you to see in greater depth and detail the way every, every the way everyday lives are impacted, the way everyday people are impacted, it doesn't include any sort of agenda. Whereas if the structural functionalists, their sort of underlying agenda in a sense was to maintain the status quo relationship of European white academics as an elite class associated with European colonial domination of the globe. The interpretive approach emerged in the mid-60s and was the origin of a major shift in the social sciences, in the social sciences led by anthropology and in particular gender studies in anthropology. I mean, the idea that an academic text, like an article that I write, can actually reproduce power inequalities. That's a tremendous, you know, owning up to something that sociologists really just didn't want to do. That was a shift that came decades later. So anthropologists went back and looked at their relationship with the cultural groups that they've studied around the world and the extent to which they extent to which they've been complicit in the reproduction of inequality in order to generate these texts, which are sponsored by and consumed by people wholly foreign from the land, the everyday lives, the cultural conditions of the groups that are being studied. And this really came to a head after World War II, is during the Cold War, when the U.S. government hired anthropologists to go into the third world and developing countries, especially in Latin America, and learn about the various ethnic groups for a specific purpose, the potential for counterinsurgency, psychological warfare, and the manipulation of groups through cultural knowledge. And there's this great thing called Project Camelot. You'd have to look it up, but it started overlapping with the Vietnam War and the pushback in other areas of society. And the anthropologists had to look at one another and say, what are we doing? Is this the value that anthropology is supposed to be contributing to the greater human experience? And so that introspective reflection, you know, what are the impacts of the text that I'm creating, is based on the idea that you can interpret a text beyond what it just says. What is its context in sociocultural processes? What its relationship to power inequalities? And that in itself drew the ink of a lot of scholars. And this also came from literary criticism, the questioning of the context of text, the production of text, and looking at all kinds of cultural productions as texts that can be deconstructed and read or interpreted. And what emerged from this in the late 70s was a growing prominence of neo-Marxist and critical theory spanning the social sciences, and you saw the emergence of race and ethnic studies, gender studies, you know, and then Asian studies and Hispanic studies. These started in the mid to late 1970s, 
and the value that they adopted and that continues to this day is the sense of obligation to address power inequalities or at least highlight forms of oppression. Why? So that the most people can share in the quality of life that we have the resources as a society to generate, which is to say, identifying the barriers to scarce resources that impact different groups and finding ways that they are reproduced, created, and how they might be challenged by minority groups or subjugated classes in order to form you know, a more enlightened society where the wealth of society is widely distributed. And that's the third theoretical lens, and I'm just going to call it critical theory. Sometimes in sociology textbooks, it's called conflict theory, and but critical theory is a little more sophisticated. The idea is that you know, class, society can be divided into classes, socioeconomic classes, and that all of society, culture that we see, our everyday lives, it's determined by class relations, class conflict. It's determined or it's the product of the power of the haves in society versus the have-nots. And so conflict theory and um, critical theory has its roots in Marxist notions, but it goes beyond just class and includes marginalized voices of all kinds of groups, ethnic and racial studies, as I said, post-colonial studies of social justice and change is really the underlying value when you're using this critical theory, this theoretical model. Or to put it another way, when you're focusing on some minority group and how they're getting the short end of the stick somewhere and you're pointing to specific policies and you're identifying the people who gain and maintain power as a result of certain policies and the people who have interests in shifting balances of power between groups and you sort of, you know, follow the money. You focus on the people who are getting screwed. If that's your focus, if that's something that you're really interested in when you talk about an issue, you really want to get down to what impacts people's everyday lives and what might better some people's lives, what might create a more just society, or what might give some people access to scarce resources that they didn't have before, like education or safe food and shelter, and just the quality of life, the ability to go to parks, museums, and other kinds of enrichment, higher education. These are scarce resources. Not everybody has access to them. Then you're using critical theory. Like that's what you're focusing on. And if you descend into detail about how those things are embedded in television commercials, gender inequality, we see in Axe body spray commercials, the Me Too era, these are interpretations of everyday life, of meaning and symbols, what it means to be a man, what it means to be a woman, the expectations, the prescriptions, the norms. And those things are communicated to us. And we receive these, we consume them. And from a critical perspective, and this is classic Marxism, the dominant class determines and has the most impact on the culture of the society. And in the case of the United States, so you look at the most you know, powerful categories of people, 
you're looking at the macro level where you can see age groups, demographic information, education, professional industries, and you find the leading elite group, and you'll see what they hold as valuable is reflected in mainstream culture in that society, and that a shift in power relations between classes may mean major changes in the cultural milieu. Stereotypes change, values change, expectations and norms change, what's appropriate and not appropriate, what's seen as valuable and the good versus what's threatening and the bad. So those are some ideas to help you structure your approach to analysis. And be cognizant of what level, what scale you're going to be talking about, whether you're talking about the community scale and the way it interacts with the macro national scale and how individuals, and so you know, you can keep in mind that you're crossing three levels of social complexity and you can be cognizant of the theoretical lenses at your disposal. You can talk about structures and institutions and how they are interrelated and you talk about cultural elements and how to read elements of culture as text through which you can gain insight into the fabric and meaning of everyday lives. And then critical theory, which is sort of the top shelf analysis, in my view, because it most directly focuses on social justice, making the world a better place, exposing the ways people, positions of power and trust to gain social benefit at the expense of social groups or classes or whatever level of social division that you're talking about. And hopefully those will be some tools that you can apply as you develop, you know, analytical pieces and research-based writing, both in this course and in your future coursework.